As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me once again is a voice you're familiar with, Professor Alana Lentin, someone I consider a teacher. Welcome back to The Malcolm Effect. Thanks, Mamadou. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute honour and privilege and a voice you're familiar with, the formidable Deej. Now, before we carry on this conversation, you all know that content creation is not cheap and I am committed and dedicated to keeping everything on the Malcolm Effect for free in terms of the podcast. So if you haven't already, please check out the Patreon link, which can be found in the episode description. Thank you for all the support. It's much appreciated. Now back to the episode. Let's go straight into it. We're talking all things woke. You will be hard pressed to turn on a mainstream news outlet or right-wing right-wing news outlet without hearing the word woke it has been bastardized and people now use it for a term that means everything and nothing at the same time my first question to you then is where did the term woke come from well it's actually quite an interesting story i think this has been reported or parts of it have been reported in you know online media and so on but i'm not sure how widely known it is so i think most people know that the term woke comes from african-american vernacular english or aave and they possibly also know that it originates actually pretty long time ago so around the sort of early 20th century but they might not know the whole kind of history of it at least part of the history that i've been looking into and it actually connects to song that was written by a singer, a blues singer called Lead Belly. And he wrote it in the context of the 1931 case of the Scottsboro Boys. But it's also connected partially, even before that, to the 1923 call by Marcus Garvey, who was, of course, the founder of the Negro Improvement Association, which Robin Kelly, in his book Freedom Dreams, calls the largest African redemption movement in the history of the world. And Marcus Garvey was calling on black people around the world in the context of the assault on Ethiopia to wake up Ethiopia, wake up Africa, he said. And this was, Robin Kelly says, a call to global black citizens to become more socially and politically conscious. So he didn't actually use the word woke, but there was this not no uh, sorry this notion that black consciousness had to be about waking up, waking up to reality, seeing the truth, and understanding how the world works. So coming back to the Lead Belly story, so he was he wrote this song in 1938 about this case of these nine teenagers. They were very young boys between the age, I think, of 13 to the end of their teens. And they were on a train and at Scottsboro, Alabama, they were arrested because they'd been accused of rape by two white women. Very common story, as we know. And the reason this is interesting and the reason I think 
saying a little bit more about that history connects to the story about woke is that you said yourself, woke is often used in the right wing press. And very often you'll notice that there's a connection made between wokeness and leftism or even communism or socialism, this kind of hysteria about this. And this actually goes back a really long way in the history of sort of black movements in the United States. So the reason the Scottsboro case is interesting in this regard not only because it was an extremely famous case within the history of kind of black struggle in the 20th century, but also because it was taken up by the American Communist Party and their auxiliary organization, the International Labor Defense, or the ILD. And they took up the Scottsboro Boys case because at their first trial, obviously, they didn't have adequate legal representation, and they were very hastily convicted, and all but one of them was sentenced to death. So the ILD hired this really successful lawyer called Samuel Leibovitz to defend the boys. But what was interesting is that it became, the case became a flashpoint in a conflict between the NAACP and the Communist Party or the ILD, where the NAACP was accusing the ILD of using these black teenagers for their own kind of propaganda purposes. And Robin Kelly again writes about this in an article that you, you know, I can share with you, you can share with the listeners. The communists were responding to the NAACP and saying that actually the reason that this case was very important is that it was representative of wider injustice across the American South. They said it was impossible for these boys to have an impartial trial. And they also realized that you couldn't just fight through legal means. So the reason they were in conflict with the NAACP is that they wanted a more kind of you know, an approach taken through the courts and through policy. And the Communist Party was saying, no, we actually have to encourage mass mobilization. And there were protests as far and wide as South Africa and Moscow about the Scottsboro Boys case. And it shows, according to Robin Kelly and others, how the Communist Party helped to make the African-American cause an internationalist one. And the reason for this was not just some kind of benevolence by white communists for, uh, you know, black teenagers. It was because it was at this time partly owing to the importance of this case that many black people began to join the Communist Party. Claudia Jones, somebody that whose name, you know, the name is very familiar. She was active on their case in their recent collection of black communist women's writing. Sharice Burden-Selly and Jodie Dean write about the importance of this case for kind of, you know, bringing black people into the party. And Robin Kelly also notes that there was a lot of cultural production around this case. And that's why we get that Lead Belly song in which he tells people to stay woke. And, you know, this is particularly about the Scottsboro case, as I said. And I think, you know, just to to finish this point, I don't think it's surprising that woke has come under attack by the right today, because you often get this link, as I said earlier, between anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-transphobia, efforts to decolonize the curriculum and so on and so forth, and communism or socialism. So there's this notion that it's all kind of this right wing plot to indoctrinate your kids and turn them woke or whatever it might be. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for laying that out for us. But thinking about the terrain in most of the Western world, it seems like the right have won when it comes to meaning making. So mm. how were they able to capture this in like this iteration of anti-leftist politics that comes in the form of being anti-woke? 
how they were able to capture it. I mean, obviously, you said it yourself at the beginning, the media in most of the world, or at least in the Western world where this has purchase, is basically right wing. Okay, And I think we need to look further back. I mean, one thing I think we need to say at the outset is that there's no way of separating woke out from anti-blackness, right? And although a lot of the, um, you know, for example, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, his anti-woke bill, right, also was very much focused on the rights of LGBTQIA plus people, but there's no way really of separating these two things out. And I think it's a mistake on the left to try to see, you know, anti-racism over here and gender rights over there, right? These two things are very much cemented. And we see, for example, how it's most often black women, black non-binary and trans people who are very much at the most pointy edge of the attacks on bodily autonomy and reproductive rights. So this is very much, it's very much anti-black and it comes at a time of mass mobilization, of course, within the context of the global movement for black lives. We saw the explosion of that protest or those protests, particularly in the summer of 2020 after the atrocious uh, state murder of George Floyd of course. And so that's the context for it. And that's what kind of pre- creates the atmosphere in which these kinds of what I sometimes refer to as moral panic. But I think it's much more than that. I think we need to see it as a counterinsurgent attack on this global uprising. Right. So that's the kind of the context for it. But why have they managed to capture that language? Or why is the right being successful on that? I think it we need to zoom out. So not only do we have this anti-blackness, which is fundamental to it, but we also have a much longer history. And I've written quite a lot about this, about racism being made debatable. And this is a concept I take from my friend and co-writer, Gavin Titley, who wrote about the debatability of racism. And we all know about this, right? You see these kinds of panel shows where people debate whether or not it's racist to do X, right? Or is this scenario really racist? Or shouldn't we have an open and honest? It's very interesting how these debates are always open and honest when the right is having them, but never really open and honest uh, from their perspective when the left is having them, right? There's always some kind of nefarious agenda. We must have an open and honest debate about refugees, or we have to have an open and honest debate about whether, you know, decolonization or tearing down statues is not the worst crime in the world and this kind of thing. So you create this atmosphere of debatability in which basically everything is open for debate and everything is equal. There's no kind of understanding that some things are beyond the pale, that some things need to be attacked, lest we see the rise and resurgence of fascism, which I think it's fair to say we're actually witnessing today. So this idea of what they sometimes like to call on the debate on the right, viewpoint diversity, right, that we'll get to somehow the kernel of truth by airing all views. And it really turns matters of survival into a sport, a sort of a spectator sport for um, the white population. Thank you so much for that. So I want to kind of, I guess, unpack that or dig further then. Given that the right has been so successful in meaning making, has been so successful in capturing slogans uh, which have radical roots, is it that we totally disavow and abandon sloganeering as a tactic, even though I recognize that sloganeering oftentimes can be a form of mobilization as it's quick to get out of people's tongues and it's a form of mass mobilization. But given that it always has the ability of being captured, do you think as the left, we should just disavow sloganeering or or these kind of tactics? I mean, I think, I don't really think any of this is about language. 
I think the language is a conduit. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by focusing too much on this because it kind of doesn't really matter what words you use. Because woke, Mm -hmm. if we just want to isolate that out, and I also think it would be a mistake to isolate woke out. It's interesting, just to to make a parenthesis, because I'm currently writing about the the war on critical race theory. And there's kind of Mm -hmm. been a progression from the focus on critical race theory by the right as an object of attack to kind of this more general focus on woke or wokeism, right, which has been more exportable because, of course, critical race theory is quite particular as a subject of study to the United States. It's not very much taught in other places. So it was easy for the right in the United States to relaunch an attack the university, which is seen as a hotbed of kind of Marxist indoctrination since, you know, forever, but particularly within the kind of the, the fervent anti-cap, uh, sorry, anti-communism, I wish it was anti-capitalism, but anti-communism of the 1950s and 1960s with the attacks from the right on particular academics. So that's, that, and you see this happening periodically. You see it with the complete now cancellation of affirmative action, the attack on ethnic studies, all of this kind of thing. So one of the principal actors in the so-called war on critical race theory is a nasty character called Chris Rufo. He's, I think he calls himself a senior research fellow or something. They like to give themselves these titles that make them sound, you know, more serious than they are. He works for this right-wing think tank (laughs) called the Manhattan Institute in the States. Various people, including Professor of Political Science Eric Kaufman from Birkbeck, college in London. So there's an international connection. He's got a fellowship there as well. That's just an interesting connection because for me, he's one of the principal actors in this kind of making racism debatable and really kind of, you know, sending, making connections with the far right, but, you know, leaving that aside. But what Christopher Rufo said was that critical race theory is a much better object of scorn for the right than something like woke, because woke is too vague, right? So I find that quite interesting, what kind of language works, but maybe he was wrong, because woke or wokeism seems to have taken on this international kind of, taken wings and flown. You even have in France, President Macron talking about le wokeisme, this kind of, you know, French um, importation of an American idea that has no place in so-called secular France, where we are all universalists, and we shouldn't be focusing on anybody's, um, you know, racialized positioning, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so, however, coming back to all of this, what's obvious from listen, when you start to listen to key actors like Christopher Rufo, he's one of the main ideologues of the war on critical race theory, stroke the war on woke, is that the language is just, it's like a packaging around a set of actions, which they've been very successful at carrying out. And what they do is that they... What the right has, particularly in the United States, first of all, they have a lot of money and they're able to action what looks like grassroots organizations and spur them into action very quickly. Right. And they don't these are not real grassroots organizations. They're heavily funded lobby groups that look like grassroots organizations and they're able to sort of reactivate those activists in a very easy way. So a lot of the people who are involved in protests against not just critical race theory in school, uh, bathrooms for trans people in school, you know, things like uh, books, so library boards, you know, what books can be read and what books can't be read, all of these kinds of things, they're actually 
tea party activists. So they're people who were kind of brought together and very often paid to during the Obama era in the United States to mobilize against Obama. There was this whole, I don't know if people even remember this, but all of this stuff about was Obama really born in the United States, birtherism, right? Yep. So this truth, like Donald Trump was a main proponent of the idea that Obama was actually not the not American. And so those activists can be reactivated around new issues. You also saw them coming out against mask mandates and vaccination mandates uh, during COVID. So it's it's easy for the right to do this because they have a lot of money and a lot of kind of tentacles in many kind of different spheres, particularly in the United States, but also, for example, in the UK. Get into that if you like. Absolutely. I want to kind of uh, hand over to Deej, actually, if you want to also tackle the question of the right and its ability for meaning making and what we can do. You broke up, but I think what you said was, if I can sort of answer the question of the rights kind of systems of meaning making. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's hard to follow Alana because I think that Alana's (laughs) so, so well. And I think that whilst an agreement that language really doesn't matter, there is something to be said about how well the language has been mobilized within the right, how well they've been able to do this work of making everything and anything mean woke, right? And that's something Mm, that you see is also being actually taken on by many people who would call themselves like leftists or progressives. And I think Mm. for me, there's like a real kind of strange contradiction here, right? And that strange contradiction being absolutely the right has mobilized in frightening ways are using this terminology to oftentimes enact the most violent and ridiculous policies, um, focusing on the most ridiculous points of, of politics. But I also look at how the left responds to this and it leaves me with some 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 troubles, right? I think mm, that yeah. there's obviously a sort of radical liberalism, a radical neoliberalism even, that we see in the sort of identitarian politics that has become rife, especially in social media and especially within our sort of media era and is taken up oftentimes by a lot of well-meaning young people who would like mm. to consider themselves progressive, but whose politics has always been relatively surface level, relatively about symbolism. And I think mm. because so much of progressive politics is now orientated around the right language, you know, the right terminology, the right symbolism, who can say a phrase, who can't say a phrase. We've also opened the terrain for the types of strategic targeting of a lot of our politics. And for me, a lot of that has to do with the the de-radicalization of our politics and the dematerialization of our politics, right? Where we've gotten into a thing where it's all about having the perfect slogan and getting into Mm. petty fights about who owns what symbolism, who, you know, Mm. what is the right word to say something and have started to engage in a form of policing of each other oftentimes that is wholly, wholly, wholly like useless and destroys Mm. the ability for us to strategize and organize. And the right, whilst they don't always have consensus, are really, really good at strategizing and organizing. And I think oftentimes... Because of this inability, I think, especially in the kind of current conjuncture, for people to really grapple with the fact that the fight isn't going to be in language, the fight isn't going to be in symbols, the fight has to be with the people on the streets, it has to be like mobilization just has to happen, organizing has to happen, it has to be the main priority. Mm that we're losing a lot, you know, and I myself, I'm getting quite disillusioned being in organizing spaces where we're spending more of our time dealing with things that are, whilst important, are far too distracting than like, you know, Mm. feeding people and freeing people. 
I mean, I think that's absolutely right. But I think Mamadou's question was on why is the right so good at capturing the language? And I think what I want to emphasize, whereas those things ever, those things that you're pointing out are extremely true and they happen and they're a real detriment. At the same time, I don't think that anything that the left can do, I mean, Everything that the left will do or that anti-racist specifically will do will be picked up by the right and will be attacked. And the machinery, as you know, as you said, that they have is simply much larger and much, you know, they're much better and they have a much longer history of being able to do this. And so the only way to kind of counter this is through, as you say, material politics and kind of one thing I was inspired by somebody saying part of the problem, and it's it's paradoxical because we're having the conversation, but part of the problem is in our responses, right? In our trying to kind of make sense of what the right is doing, we tend to kind of wrap, get wrapped up in what should the response be rather than actually doing the actions that anyway we're accused of doing, right? We're accused of being, you know, fomenting communist plots or, and, you know, plots to overthrow the state. Well, yeah, let's get on let's with overthrowing the state. Absolutely. Exactly. Instead of like, you know, wasting time talking about, you know, what's the best terminology for this, that and the other. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important. Yeah. yeah and also on. wasting time like you said, trying to think of a response or centering ourselves or allowing ourselves to be get, to get caught up in, in the distractions of it. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what we say, what we do, the, the kind of red scare that is infected and, and part of the global order will always be there. You just do it anyway. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, one other thing I wanted to point out about this, and you know, you said it at the beginning when you were talking about neoliberalism, and I think this connects to this this viewpoint diversity thing is that you don't unfortunately leave this up only to the right. Of course, we can have a debate about who's right and who's left, but there are people who see themselves as leftist who see wokeness as being evil incarnate and have spent a lot of time and energy attacking it in, for example, a series of books that have been published lately by people who profess to be from the left. So there's a book that was published recently by the German-American philosopher Susan Nyman called Left is Not Woke or Woke is Not Left. I can't even remember what the title is exactly. And her argument is that basically by allowing itself to become woke, whatever this means, the left has drifted away from enlightenment principles, which are, of course, the real principles, according to her, which are going to lead us to redemption or whatever it might be. And, you know, it's very, very interesting that you have these kinds of very short-sighted, often very detached academic actors writing these things or speaking about these things. And really they too, for my money, are participating in the fundamental anti-blackness, anti-communism of the right by assuming that anything that's touched by black consciousness raising, activism and popular culture is necessarily going to be bad for the left. You know, arguing, as she does in that book, that in order to fight racism, we merely have to read Voltaire, right? And I'm not joking. This is literally in the book, you know, is a real problem as far as I'm concerned. And and it also, I think, one last thing I want to say, it's also very prob- problematic because, of course, it dovetails with the anti-trans, uh, you know, the political transphobia uh, that you also see on sectors of the on of the left, So, you know, there's or the so-called left, you know, very often the attacks on woke, even while professing to be anti-racist, a particular book that I'm thinking about does this this work. I think it's called I think the title is called Cancelled, the left way back from woke or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's basically, you know, a barely veiled transphobic text. 
And that's what it is. So that root, and that's why I said earlier that it's so important to look at, you know, race and gender together when we're having these conversations. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking through like, what some of these fears from people who would identify with themselves as being on the left are, and it, it tends to be people who at, at their core have very kind of politically conservative values. Mm-hmm. And there's a yeah. deep fear of, you know, what I think is just a sort of progressivism of the time where young people are way more politicized and absolutely yes, sometimes this falls on identitarian lines, but that basic drive for trans people, for people of color to have decent lives seems to be so abhorrent to those who have historically been or viewed themselves as the arbiters of freedom. So when our conceptions Mm. of freedom don't fall neatly into their lines, there's this panic, there's this fear, there's this need to disavow anything that looks like a different conception of freedom. Absolutely. And I can just want to, I guess, put it to both of you again, then. We speak about those on the left who come out and have this disavowal of the term woke, but they do so in defense of what they believe is in the defense of material politics. So they Mm. say things like the left has lost its way. The left used to speak about class struggle and class analysis, and now we're focused on, quote unquote, the woke. What do you think of that? I mean... I think that there's a very, I I think very often the people who say that are very detached from uh, taking on board the critiques that that Deej made, of course, about a certain tendency to make things about, you know, the superficial. I do agree that that's there. However, one of the things I often throw into the mix is I wonder how much of that has got to do with, you know, the social media landscape. I don't know. And maybe maybe I'm detached. Maybe I don't know. But I, I always wonder, do people really have these conversations at organizing meetings about language? Maybe they do. But I wager that a lot of the campaigns, the more grassroots campaigns, I'm thinking about people, you know, let's talk about migrants and refugees in Ireland, for example, who are mobilizing against direct provision, which is the system that, you know, migrants and asylum seekers are forced to live in these kind of appalling conditions. And they're mobilizing constantly. I always think to myself about groups like that who are very active on the ground in communities. To what extent are they concerned with the more superficial? I doubt it. I just think that we get we get everything filtered these days through social media. So we tend to think that this is a bigger problem than it is, right? And I actually think that a lot of the people on the so-called left who say that we need to get back to a real class on materialist politics, I often wonder to what extent they're actually involved in those politics. Very often when you see what they're focused on, they're very, they're very concerned with what happens at universities. And that always sends an alarm bell to me because it means that you have actually yourself, you haven't walked outside the campus, right? Mm-hmm. So you think that everything is campus politics, particularly <laughs> in the US, right? but not only, right? And so when you make these examples, and they do sound outrageous, like, you know, I could cite examples from things that I've read, but without boring you with the details. But you you think, yeah, this sounds outrageous. Like, why would anybody be going on about, you know, you use this language and we're going to, um, you know, we're going to purge you because you said this wrong thing. And, you know, I just don't think that it's as widespread as these people imply. And I think they participate in a demonization of the popular left and a folding of everything together, reduction of everything to everything by by doing this. Because, of course, those people you know, let's look at something like Jacobin, like they have a massive readership. So that's what gets out there. And we know more about that than we know about these much smaller grassroots activities that that people, everyday people are involved in all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to Alana's point, 
A lot of the discourse surrounding oftentimes the most superficial of of these kinds of ideas and these kinds of discourses tends to be on the college campus, right? It tends to be Mm. university discourses, but in the real world, obviously it's permeating into the real world in a really real way that's quite terrifying. To, to, To your question though, I think that there's a materialist analysis of absolutely everything, right? And there is a materialist analysis of transphobia. There's a material analysis of gender. All of those things exist. And so leftists who seem to not understand that anti-racism, that trans inclusion, all of those politics that outwardly appear to be superficial to them or seem like this, you know, very disparaging conception of wokeness as they've come to are also not organizing with like trans people, are also not an- organizing anti-racist circles. Yeah. In those circles, it's not really about the right, getting everything right, but it, it's, it is also, it's mostly about ensuring that people survive, right? And trans survival is an absolute part of my politics. It should be a part of our politics. Mm. Ensuring that the realities and the conditions under which white supremacy and racism affect the lives of people of color is an absolute reality. And it is absolutely intersected Mm. with global politics in such a a, a mass way that to think of it as immaterial, to think of it as, you know, superficial is to really miss what I think is, is is an actual material analysis. And that's to say that if we, if we're bound to orthodoxy in the way a lot of people are, if we just need everything to have been written about in, you know, um, Das Kapital in order to consider (laughs) it materialist, then we're going to completely miss the entire body of work that comes after Marx and the importance of shifting Marxism, the importance of shifting our conceptions of communism and socialism to the mm. current juncture. We are not in the 18th century, right? So we can't theorize simply on the basis of the 18th century. History has happened since then. And that history is a materialist history that also needs to be accounted for in order to actually understand our current political conditions. If you're not doing that, then absolutely mm. you're going to think trans rights is unimportant or anti-racism is unimportant but some of the best most successful internationalist movement were founded on anti-racist principles so then what you know (laughs) and exactly yeah yeah absolutely go ahead Alana no I was just gonna say I mean you inspired me to think that actually these problems are a lot more long-standing you said like we're not in the 19th century anymore but a lot of the same problems existed if you look at the history of the United States or you know the United Kingdom any of the kind of the countries of the imperial core, you see white workers, not all of them, but many white workers uh, expressing what Gerald Horn, the African-American historian, calls class collaboration with the ruling class against black workers, migrant workers, indigenous people, and so on, right? And so these, these kind of politics have always been there. So when people on the left say we need to stop thinking about the superficial, what they think of as the superficial policies, uh, politics of race and gender and get back to brass tacks, what they're actually doing is, you know, carrying on in a long tradition. And they, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're lying that they're doing the real materialist politics of anti-racism because very often what they're doing is actually through setting this aside and saying that it's superficial, they're actually, you know, reenacting this class collaboration, which aligns very well with very worrying concerns on the right. So one of the things I was thinking about that the reason you get, uh, you're having this kind of resurgence of this really reactionary moment is because at the same time, you have this nativist politics, very strong in Europe, anti-immigrationism, the idea of the great replacement, you know, this idea that multiculturalism and immigration is going to lead to the demise of white nations, white people in Europe and elsewhere casting themselves as the true indigenous people, which is very interesting when you think about the co-optation of anti-racist language or anti-colonialist language. 
and a kind of left that tacitly participates in upholding that. So, you know, this, the kind of, what do they call them, the patriotic leftists or the left patriots or whatever they call them, these people are participating in upholding the idea that, yes, white people have more of a right to exist in society, white people or cis straight people have more of a right to exist in society than other people. And that's, again, as, as you were saying very clearly, is not a politics that any of us should, um, should countenance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the thing too, when you think about how this politics is often espoused, you would assume that, or the hyper-focus on this on this material politics oftentimes is focused on what we consider like a worker and what we consider not a worker. And it oftentimes focuses solely on like what their conception of the economy is. As And we've had this conversation before without ever recognizing the political part is actually the social relations of gender, race, and all these things that kind of constitute how we live under capitalism. But for me, it's also like drawing a materialist politics recognizes the fact that like trans people are laborers, you know, black people are laborers, black people are workers. They fit into the economy, their exclusion from the economy, their precarity in the economy through, through policy, through law, through the juridical system is of, should be of concern to us. It absolutely should be of concern to us because the point is, if someone who is transphobic is in a position of power, refuses to hire trans people, if it's policy, if policy aligns with transphobia, trans people are quite literally going to die. They're not going to be able to feed themselves. If policy aligns with racism, black people are going to die. They are dying, in fact, as are trans people. And that's why, for me, that will never be a separate issue to my politics. Absolutely. And to return it to the to the history of wokeism and the history of the Scottsboro boys that I described at the at the top. I mean, when they talk about the case galvanizing black people and bringing them into the Communist Party. So obviously black people as workers are choosing to join you know, the party because of their support for the Scottsboro boys. And you can see the direct connection between, you know, black people as workers and other marginalized people as workers and the left, right? And, it, you know, history has shown us that that relationship was, didn't survive for reasons to do with, again, class collaboration and the failure to take seriously the, the politics of race and the, and the ongoing conditions of racial capitalism. Absolutely. <laughs> No, thank you so much. I kind of wanted to, similar type, similar lines, but on the question of a culture war that seems mm. to be, we are embattled, embroiled in. Some people are refusing to engage while other who chase clout are on every single media platform talking about a culture war. <laughs> so I guess my question is, to what do we owe this current instantiation of the culture war in your understanding, Alana? Look, I really resist the language of culture war, and I don't think that we should use it personally. I think that this is a counterinsurgency and that it involves, you know, it's not just coming from the right, as we've already described. It comes from elements on the so-called left or certainly in the liberal, on the liberal side of things. And it's, as I said earlier, it is mobilized in reaction to black uprising. It's mobilized in reaction to trans and gender non-conforming people mobilizing for their survival. And I think, again, it's in the context of this white anxiety that they're being replaced. And it's a fight back. It's a white lash, you know, to use that uh, popular expression. And when we use the concept of culture war, two things are going on. Firstly, it's a war, right? It's a conflict. It's a little bit like describing 
colonialism in Palestine as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is obviously a euphemism of the first order. What you have here is the powerful attacking the weak, right? So it's 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 an attack. It's not it's not a war, right? As as in, it's not a two-sided war. Wars often are one-sided, but you know what I'm saying. This is kind of this idea that it's a conflict within the kind of ambit of viewpoint diversity, and we're all just expressing our views and so on. What we have is the taking away of freedoms from people, right? Freedoms to to study, freedoms to decide what to do with their own bodies, freedoms to reproduce or to or to not be forced into, you know, being sterilized, which is of course the flip side of the whole thing about the attacks on abortion rights in the, in the United States. What people don't talk about is the number of black and indigenous and migrant women who are forcibly sterilized, particularly when incarcerated. So that whole thing just, you know, goes away. There's all of this stuff being mobilized by the state with the help of its propaganda arm, right? The the media, the, both the mainstream and the right-wing media. And the idea that this is kind of a conflict, I think, veils that. So that's a very important thing. The other thing is, I think when people say culture war, there's this notion that culture is kind of superficial and it's not, you know, it's not imbricated in or it's not deeply related to politics, economy, the social, etc. Just as, again, to return to the Scottsboro case, the case was expressed through song, through plays, through all of this kind of thing, then, you know, culture is an incredibly important vehicle for promoting ideas among the masses. And it's always interesting to me how it becomes, a, particularly from the more the, the left that sees itself as more serious and more materialist, how it becomes an object of scorn. Maybe you, you have a different view. No, I mean, again, beautifully said. I think there was something actually for me that I've taken from your writing that I, that I used to look at how the language around the culture wars is kind of framed and why I, I also don't subscribe to that language. And I think it's because it's become very unfavorable to speak and name directly what is in op- what you're in opposition to, right? To say that this culture war is actually about anti-Blackness, anti-migrant sentiment, to say quite plainly it's actually a racism um, mm-hmm. that is being discussed and that is being debated becomes unfavorable because there's this kind of anxiety around naming racism and naming race, right? And a need to make things seem like not racism. And I think that for a long time, especially in the sort of downturn of a sort of like historical scientific racism and specifically naming those types of racisms, things then become about culture, right? So it's not... Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't want brown people around us. It's that their culture is different. It's not that we want we don't want black people, it's just their culture is different. And then the culture becomes the terrain, not the actual elements of racism that we are all familiar to, familiar with. And I think this is something that is really, really present, especially in Britain, right? There's this kind of courteousness to the way mm. Britain oftentimes deals with and discusses and, and, and engages with racism that needs to call it anything but. And that's where, for me, this language sits, right? Because when it's about culture, especially in the minds of the masses, then it can't be racist, right? If it's not about the actual skin tone or the phrenology of migrants, but it's about their cultural practices, then that's certainly not racism, right? And I think that's the terrain that this is being leveraged on. That's the space through which this discourse is being mobilized because it's too impolite to say we want to just be brazenly racist we need to yeah. frame this as us defending our culture without naming that what we're defending is this kind of very conservative notion of whiteness that we want to protect that we feel we feel as though is is being threatened 
That's how the language becomes mobilized for me. It's not about transness. It's about the culture of protecting what women, you know, about a, a womanhood, all that kind of language, I think, feeds into the way it's mobilized. And that's why I think it's it's really important now more than ever to not only just do the work because they're going to call you whatever anyway, but also yeah. to be unafraid of, of saying what you're saying, you know, to be unafraid to say that I'm an anti-racist, to be unafraid to say I'm a mm. communist. They're going to call you one anyway. These are all things they think in think are pejoratives. And so we shouldn't also allow them the terrain to determine how they want their discourse to be called, right? So no, actually, if I'm a communist, this isn't a conversation about the culture war. This is about the fact that you're a fascist. So let's talk about that, you know? That's absolutely (laughs) right. That's that's a really good way of of putting it. I think that's, that's right, because they have no problem with calling us names. So it's very interesting how we skirt around the issue. And I think to a certain extent, it is about how the left has accepted the terms of the conversation set by the right or set by the liberal's core, that talking about race, talking about racism is always in excess of the situation and that it's kind of impolite, right? Or that it, you know, to to use the language of certain certain elements of the left, that it participates in naturalizing race as a category and so on and so forth. And what we're talking about, of course, is race as a political project to um, make people vulnerable to premature death, to use Ruth Wilson Gilmore's terminology. It's a very good and stark way of explaining what the purposes of racism is. And in order to be able to maintain, produce, and reproduce white supremacy, as I've put it. So this, by naming this, you know, plainly, it becomes much more difficult for them to come back at us. And I think that point that you made there is is extremely important in terms of how we respond. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I guess my final question, which you both spoke to, but I'm going to ask in the Lenin fashion, what is to mm-hmm. be done? Because we just seem like we're being beat on every single front at the moment. I know there's some movement taking place and obviously, again, the Global South always puts a lot of the Western left to shame. But for those of us that have an eye in the Western left or exist within that category, what do you think is to be done? Okay, I mean, I think partly we've answered this, but I think one thing that we have to do, and this is not something that any of us do, right? But some people out there do it. We have to refuse to engage. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there is anything to be gained by engaging with those who want our destruction. Much as I... You know, I like to listen to a good takedown of, let's say, Christopher Rufo or any of these characters. You see this on like Mark Lamont Hill, for example, did it, did it. I mean, it's very funny. It's very good because he's so much more intelligent than Chris Rufo. He interviews him and he, you know, asks him to name one thing that he likes about whiteness. And of course, Chris Rufo can't answer and he has him tongue twisted and so on. But at the same time, when you invite somebody like that onto your platform or when certain so-called leftists go onto right wing platforms, you accept the terms of the debate, right? You, you allow them into our spaces and you also publicly acknowledge that there's a problem, right? And I think in the same way that they crowd us out, I think we need to crowd them out with a lot less power than we have. And practically what that means 
is to continue to do work which is much more less visible, much more silent, and that's the work of political education in spaces, you know, sometimes public space, spaces like this one, which is very, very important, but also in private spaces, within groups, within, uh, you know, those of us who are teachers, like Deej and myself, you know, you do that with your students, you do that in your community, and you have, you do that very kind of slow and careful work, which doesn't get you any of the media brownie points, because some of the things that I see happening is a lot of clamor to be invited onto like TV shows, radio shows, all the rest of it, and to be the representative. And I just think that that old maxim of you can't be in the tent pissing out, you've got to be out of the tent pissing in, right? Which an expression I was told at university, which I've always loved. I mean, that basically stands true. How can you at the one hand, on the one hand, lambast an institution for being racist and then go and accept its terms by, you know, appearing on whatever TV show or engaging whatever conference they're organizing and speak from the platform as though you're actually taking something down. No, no, you're not. You're only, I think, aggrandizing yourself. I do want to ask, so people will say, given that if the goal is to mass mobilize people and given that the ear of the masses are all too often on these places like Sky News and other networks. So you're mm. saying there's no utility in appearing in these places? I personally don't think that there is. I don't think that, that you can win at that game. But that, you know, other people will have a difference of opinion. I think what happens is that somebody good, quote unquote, goes on one of these programs, it generates some clips on social media, everybody applauds, everybody says you were wonderful, and then things move on in exactly the same way. So what have you done? But if you make a public statement and say, no, I was invited by Sky News or whoever to go on and I've refused for this, that and that reason, I think you're standing in your power and you're leading Mm -hmm. by example. That's my personal view. Because I don't believe in representation, but I might be very radical on that. I don't think representation gets people anywhere. Absolutely. And I would say like... (laughs) Alana's worded it far far kinder than I would have I think that you know I've been thinking about this a lot and I've been thinking about myself and I've been thinking about all the ways we fall into this trap right and I think that a lot of especially online politics becomes a game of ego Mm -hmm. and I think we need to be honest about the ego satisfaction that people gain from being presented in a mass space and a mass audience the legitimization they get from that it's not about the legitimization of your message because trust me and I've had conversations with people if you go on GB News the person on who's watching GB News is not watching it to be convinced of your argument they're watching it to laugh at you and to say that your your ideas are, are stupid communist ideas anyway you know setting the terrain that oh but you might change one person's mind there is such better use of your time There is, because there are young people, there are people who want to be politically educated, who are searching desperately for people to educate them and guide them. And those people aren't on GB News. Those people are already looking for those things. They're already looking for those types of communities. Those people are in the streets and having conversations with them can be absolutely transformative. And that's what it is for me. And the more I see this happening, I'm like, no, you're legitimizing your own careerism. This isn't about Mm -hmm. getting political education out there. You're also doing this thing of, and it's an unfortunate thing, whether people are aware or not aware, there's a dynamic that happens when you go onto mass media, you go onto right-wing platforms. You, 
legitimize the ideas of the idiots that you're also dunking on. You legitimize it because you're operating oftentimes in a principled manner. You're oftentimes debating them. But even that that kind of discourse, even that dialectic of a, of a debate presumes that you are on equal footing. Exactly. And sometimes you're not on equal footing, right? You're someone with a host of political education, someone who views themselves as principled, and you're talking to a fascist. <laughs> like, yeah. And in some That's instances, right. even saying... You, you don't think the fascist is a bad person. You're just trying to get these ideas. It just doesn't make sense. And at a certain point, I think that we have to be, we have to stick to our principles. We have to find alternative mm. ways of spreading our message because mass media is not for us and it's never going to be for us. Your stuff gets decontextualized. You get, you know, mass attacks and you also make people in community with you susceptible to those attacks. And I think that's that's, something- a, that's a very important point. Yeah. Because very often the people who can go on these shows, they're protected, right? Because they have a level of notoriety, which means that they're protected. But the people who who they're speaking on behalf of, who, by the way, haven't been asked to speak on, you know, for you to speak on their behalf, they're the ones who get, who are open up to attack. And that's very, very dangerous. Thank you so much for this discussion. It's been uh, super insightful for me anyway. I always love hearing you two speak. So once again, see you soon, people. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me.